0: If you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to, or, or in your program to the Scriptures, Genesis 3. I'm going to read from verse 6 down to the end of the chapter. And our subject this morning is the, the psychology of sin. What actually goes through your mind and what goes through my mind when we sin against God? It's an amazing thought That Adam and Eve, a perfect man and a perfect woman in a perfect place, would sin against God. What was going through their mind at that moment? And even as Christians, we, when we sin, perhaps even more amazingly, we sin in Christ. We sin in Christ. We can't check our union with Christ at the door. Like in Dodge City, you had to leave your firearms at the sheriff's office and go on into the city. Well, you can't leave your union with Christ at the door. Paul makes that statement to the Corinthians, a very immoral city, and he says that when you go to the prostitute, you 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 go into her in union with Christ, and you bring Christ into union with her. And it's a a, a profound and convicting passage to think about um, what it means for us as Christians to sin in union with Christ—the madness of sin. The irrationality of sin. We're going to think about that this morning as we work through uh, Genesis 6. And Lord willing, we'll end with some good news as well. So watch this space. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father, we thank you for your word. The entirety of it is truth. And it is such good news, O oh Lord, because it deals honestly with us about the bad news. There would be no gospel if it were not needed. And we are so lost in the darkness that only your son can save us. And so just like, Lord, if we go to the dermatologist and there's a malignant melanoma on our back or on our face, we do want them to tell us it's only a pimple that'll go away or a birthmark. We want them to deal honestly and to get the full diagnosis that we can have the full treatment and root out that cancer. And so, Father, we pray as we come to Scripture this morning that your Holy Spirit will help us deal openly and honestly and deeply with sin, the grand and solemn subject of sin, that we might love and trust the Lord Jesus all the more. And if there be any here this morning, O Lord, who do not yet know Jesus, we pray that this morning you will do for them what they cannot do for themselves. You will open their eyes and open their hearts that they might receive the King of Kings as their Lord and Savior, their only hope in life and in death. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pick up our reading in verse 6. Please listen carefully again. This is the Word of God. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, at her side, as it were, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed for themselves fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, literally, the voice of the Lord walking in the garden. It's interesting, we meet God in the New Testament as the Word, God the Son, in John's Gospel. And even here in the garden, they met God as the voice of the Lord walking, verbally communicating with them in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Interesting, you remember the devil last week, he goes to Eve first, he attacks the weaker vessel, not that women are weak in any way, you remember, but they are the weaker vessel, and God never intended you ladies to take the, be the point of the spear in physical or in spiritual combat. He never meant you to meet deadly men on the street or the wicked devil in your soul without the strong, kind hand of your husband by your side or your father um, to protect you and pray for you and lead you and guide you through that combat. But when he comes, when God comes down to speak, he doesn't go to Eve first. He begins with man, the leader for the one the Lord holds responsible for this mess that's evolving in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of, the, of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Adam was deflecting the blame. Not my fault, her fault. Actually, it's your fault. You gave her to me in the first place. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And that was true, you remember, Paul echoes those words. Adam was not deceived, the woman was. He deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life." I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, man, perhaps you've been at a party, maybe you out at a dinner with some friends, and you said something, well, forgive me for using a theological term, you said something stupid. <laughs> and... When you got home, your wife takes you aside, as our wives are prone to do, and asks you, what were you thinking? And you go, oh. and she says to you, if you'd opened your mouth just a little bit wider, you could have got the other foot in as well. And you think, I oh, know, I wasn't thinking. And you kind of, you, you made the mistake that we often make of engaging your mouth before engaging your brain. Well, the question that faces us this morning in our text is, what, was, what were Adam and Eve thinking as they made this decision to sin against God? And I have a number of things to say. First of all, I want you to think about the essence of sin. The essence of sin. And it's there, actually, in verse 22. We we, we meant this. We said this last week as a wee hint at the end of the, of the, of the sermon. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. In knowing good and evil, the question is, does Adam know what's good for him? And how is he supposed to figure that out? Now, when I was a child, and this is a very British colloquialism, I'm not sure if you say this here to your children, But if ever I was doing something stupid, like climbing a tree and going out too far along a branch, or if I was doing something sinful, my father would say to me, son, if you know what's good for you, you'll stop that right now. Which being translated means you're pushing the envelope, son, stop, or there'll be tears before it's all said and done. Tears either because you fall, or tears either because I spank you. I'll apply the board of instruction to the seat of learning. And so... If you know what's good for you, you'll stop that. And the question was, did, did Adam and Eve know what's good for them, and how are they supposed to come to that knowledge? And of course, the answer was the Lord God. The Lord God knows good and evil. Now, now, commentators get all messed up over this. Some of them speak about experiential knowledge. Adam now, he only knew good, and now he also knows evil. Well, that can't be what it means, because then that would, if it's knowing good and evil by personal experience, then that would make God a sinner, knowing good and evil by personal experience. Now, what the text simply means is, who has the authority to say good and evil? And Adam was to come to that understanding not by thinking, but by listening, right? God is the one who knows good from evil and evil From good, but when Adam sinned in the garden, what his essential thought was: I can figure that out by myself. I can figure that out for myself. I don't need anybody else to teach me. And that moment, the universe turned upside down and inside out, and Adam and Eve began to pursue evil as good, right? And that's a mistake you and I make every time we sin. Name a sin you ever think or say or do. And the first thing that comes into your mind is there's some goodness in this. There's some benefit to me from this. Some pleasure to be had. Some advantage to be gained. Uh, This is a good idea. We stop listening to God and we start thinking by ourselves. And that's why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not. God doesn't say use not, but he does say lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge God. Literally, make knowing God intimately your number one priority. And he will direct your paths. And Adam went wrong Here. And so I want you to to understand this. When it comes to temptation and when it comes to sanctification, when it comes to engaging with sin and when it comes to battling sin, it's a battle that's won or lost in our minds. Remember, if you want to live a way you've never lived before, you must first come to think a way you've never thought before. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing. renewing of your minds. Exactly, Ligonier's favorite verse, right? Now, it's important to realize that when we sin, it begins in our mind and then is brought forth in our body. It's not just breaking this or that particular rule. We're very prone to understate our sin, It's like politicians misspeak. No, they told a bold-faced lie. You know, when they have an affair with a lady on the, on the campaign trail, they say, that, that wasn't me. And I'm thinking, well, who was it? When we sin, it's not just breaking this or that particular rule. We sin, and it's very humbling, but you've got to embrace the diagnosis. You don't want the dermatologist to tell you it's a wee spot, don't worry, when it's a malignant melanoma. He's got to get to the bottom of the problem if he or she's going to fix the problem, right? When you and I sin... That thought that begins in our mind, I know better than God, isn't just breaking this or that particular rule. It is a total rejection of God done with the total personality of the sinner. Remember Isaiah says in Isaiah 1, give, hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for thus the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared up and brought up, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey his master's crib. But Israel does not know. And my people don't understand. A sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity. An offspring of evildoers. Children who deal corruptly. And then the words... They have forsaken the Lord, forsaken him. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They're children who are utterly estranged. And that is God's assessment of your sin and my sin, the dark sins and even our respectable sins. You might have read Jerry Bridges' respectable sins. Every sin you and I commit is that we are, when we do that, when we embrace a sin willfully and self consciously, we are despising God and choosing to reject everything He has said and going after our own way and our own definition of goodness. And that's humbling. That is humbling. But it's a necessary step. If you don't embrace the problem, you'll never fully embrace the answer. So when it comes to battling sin, You've got to battle it in your minds, right? Paul says to the Ephesians, So this I say and affirm with the Lord, that you no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk in the futility, in the emptiness of their minds, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of all manner of uncleanness with greediness. That's the problem. It's the Gentile three-step. Empty heads, hard hearts, filthy lives. Now the answer, Paul says, but you have not learned. Notice the intellectual word. You have not learned Christ in this way. If indeed you have been taught by him, just as truth is in Jesus, and he goes on and says that you lay aside the old manner of life, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind's mind. And you lay aside the old man who has been corrupted by the lies your lusts tell. Our lusts whisper lies to us. This will be good, pleasing, satisfying. And Paul says, you've got to stop that malarkey by listening to Jesus and let your union with him influence your mind and the way you think. So the essence of sin, it begins in the mind, but it commands the totality of our person as we reject the totality of our God. Now, secondly then, the extent of sin, the extent of sin. Sin begins in our mind, but it affects every part of our being. It affects our mind. Paul speaks of the Colossians. You were, at that time, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. It affects our affections, the things we think, or sorry, the things we feel, the emotions we feel, um, things we love. Remember, the psalmist speaks of Doeg, the Edomite. You love evil more than good. It wasn't just that he didn't love good, but he loved evil more. It affects our mind. It affects our affections. It affects our choice, our faculty of will. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures for in them you think that you have eternal life, but they testify of me, Christ says, but you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. Your faculty of will is corrupted. Even your conscience is also defiled. We'll be thinking on Sunday, God willing, from the book of Titus, but Paul says in the book of Titus, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, both their mind and their conscience are defiled. For they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and disqualified from every good work. So sin affects it's stain the totality. It's like when you have a, a pile of paper towels and you pour red wine on the top. It doesn't just affect the top tile; It soaks down through the whole thing. And so sin begins in the mind, but it soaks down through the whole person. And stains and touches everything. We're like bent arrows. When I was a teenager, I was a competitive archer. Never shot living things yet. We'll, we'll get there hopefully here, maybe with God's help. But... Um, we shot targets, but you'd, before you shot, you'd take your arrows out and you'd spin them on your finger and you could feel if the arrow was bent because it would vibrate as you spun it on your finger. And a bent arrow just won't fly straight. You're aiming at the target, but you'll miss. And, and the Bible says our thoughts, our affections, our will, our conscience, everything about us is like a bent arrow. Even when we try to hit the target, we miss because sin has warped us and corrupted us and polluted us. So, the essence of sin, the extent of sin, then, thirdly, the effects of sin. You may have heard this quote Sin will take you further than you want to go, it'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it'll cost you more than you want to pay. Do you know who said that? Rabbi Zacharias. You can know an awful lot about sin, but knowledge isn't the problem. We can know an awful lot, and yet it doesn't stop us sinning and making shipwreck of our ministry and our faith. Pray for me. I am made of the same stuff as as Dr. Raphael Zacharias, and if the Lord takes his hand off me, there is no limit to how far or how fast I will fall. So pray for me that God will keep me kept What does sin do? In in essence, we need to be quick. In essence, sin causes alienation at every level. It separates Adam and Eve from the life he intended. First of all, it alienates them from themselves. They knew that they were naked. Now, they were naked before, but it didn't bother them. Remember, at the end of Genesis 2, it says, Adam and Eve were naked and were not ashamed. Now, that doesn't just mean that the Garden of Eden was a nudist colony, right? It's not saying that. What it's saying is Adam and Eve had no need to cover up. Adam had no fear in his heart that his wife would know him and then find something distasteful or disappointing in that knowledge. And Eve could unzip her soul and be completely one with Adam and not not fear that she would be a disappointment to him or a letdown. And the moment they sinned against God, that's confidence evaporated and insecurity filled the void and fear. The fear that if they really knew me, they would reject me. And in many ways, it's that fear that haunts our marriages and is the... the, the beginning, middle, and end of most of our arguments. Like, man, you're cooking the salmon and you forget about it. You're watching the ball game and the salmon's on the grill and the friends are all coming around and you're watching the ball game and you're watching and you're watching and you're watching and, you're watching and it's touchdown. And, and you forget about it. And you run out of the salmon and it's turned into this beautiful, from this beautiful, medium, rare piece of salmon and it's turned into the, the, the bottom of an old shoe. It's as tough as old leather. And you bring it back in and your, your wife is horrified. We can't give that to the Smiths. They'd be be horrified. And what do you do? Just just, just the weight of that one failure, you say. You ought to have known. I told you the salmon was on the grill and it needed to be taken off in five minutes. And I was watching, I got distracted with the game. And we have this urge to blame somebody, to find somebody else to share the blame with us. Just for small things. Which is why Adam says, it's it's her fault even, God, it's actually your fault. So we, we become... Alienated from ourselves. We're not happy in our own skin. We become alienated from one another. There becomes a a, a battle for dominance in the marriage. No time to go there. Most profoundly of all, of course, we become, well, we also become alienated from the ground, the thistles and the thorns and um, labor and childbirth and all those things. But the most profound. Alienation is from God. The moment they sin they're filled with shame and they build for themselves um, a bikini and a little tidy whitey or a little speedo of, 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 of loin of, of fig leaves, right? Because the presence of sin made the presence of other people uncomfortable. But when God comes down, the fig leaves won't do, because the presence of sin makes the presence of God unbearable and they run and hide. The effects of sin, alienation, and lastly, this morning, as we bring this to a conclusion, I want you to see the savior of sinners. God comes down and he reaches out into the darkness with a question: "Where are you and that 's beautiful you 've got to understand when God asks a question he 's not looking for information right. God knows fine well where they are. It's like when your grandchildren are playing hide-and-seek and and they're three and four and five years of age and your little granddaughter goes out and hides in the garden behind a three-inch-wide sapling and she's like this and her, her little chubby face is pointing out one side of the sapling and the other her dairy heir is pointing out the backside of the, of the, of the sapling And then your three-year-old, she's convinced that if she can't see you, you can't see her. And she's covering her eyes and saying, Papa, you can come and find us now. You'll not find us, Papa. And it's a charming game, right? But you know exactly where they are. When God asks Adam and Eve, where are you? He, he's not trying to find out where they are. He's trying to find out if they know where they are and if they know what's happened. And that's the power of a question. It makes you answer the question Are you right to be angry? Well your heart's going to immediately Your heart just can't not answer that question. You know fine well you're wrong to be answered you're wrong to be angry. Be quiet. <laughs> you don't want to answer it. But questions make you answer where are you? Who told you that you are naked? What is this that you have done? He's driving in, he's trying to draw them out, not drive them away just yet. I wonder, this morning, are you hiding from God? People hide from God in all manner of places. Intellectual doubts, sometimes the inconsistency of other Christians. People I've heard—if I had a dollar for every teenager who said, "You know, I would believe in God, but my mum and dad, or these other kids in the youth group, are so wicked," you know, and um, I, I, and you blame your unbelief on the. Inconsistency of Christians. Sometimes people will hide in the busyness of life or the success of life. Could I really be that bad if I earn this much money, live in such a beautiful house, wear such clean clothes, drive such a fantastic car? Could I really be so bad if I look this good? Do you know the commonest place people hide from God? Church. Theology. They busy themselves knowing as much as they can about God to hide the fact that they know nothing of God. Or ministry, doing so much in the church, working so hard here, there, and everywhere. But it's all to to um, hide the fact that It's like the painted egg, you know, that you suck out these empty hollow eggs, and our children paint them, and they look so beautiful, but the paint covers up the fact that there's nothing on the inside. And the commonest place to hide from God is right here in the church. And God's asking you this morning, Where are you this morning? Do you know where you are? God knows where you are. Are you near to me or far from me? Have you alloyed? Have you. Allowed the noise of ministry to dull out the stillness of your soul, that your soul is empty of God and is not listening to my voice. And God is calling out to you, not to condemn you, but to draw you back to Him. Like Peter in the beach, remember Peter in the beach? <laughs> Do you love me more than these? And the, the, Jesus there, resurrection morning, he's there standing, and the beach comes. And uh, the ship comes, and the the rest of the disciples are rowing, but Peter, oh no, I'll show you, Jesus, I love you more than these. Jumps into the water, swims to the shore, jumps out soaking wet like a wet Labrador dog, shakes himself, walks across to Jesus. See, I do love you. They are rowing in, but oh no, I'm going to swim in. And then those three devastating questions. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three questions for the three denials. Because Peter's got to face up to what he's done if he's going to come back to Jesus. And yes, there's severity here as God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden. And it's a very violent word. He drives them out. To protect them, because at the edge of the tree of life, they would confirm themselves in their fallenness forever. But there's goodness here, even in that censure. As they're driven out, he puts a cherubim at the edge of the garden. The garden facing east, in the Hebrew is the idea. And it reminds us of the temple. When you came back to the temple, the temple faces east, and there are so many parallels, no time to go there now, between garden and the temple. You go to the temple, you're coming back to the garden is the idea, and there are cherubim there in the midst of the temple guarding the approach to God's presence. But there's also the image of sacrifice here as God slaughters the animals to cover their shame. And then that flaming sword, right, that spoke of death, that God was saying, man will die before you ever see my face again. And what Adam and Eve probably thought was, we will die before we ever see the face again. They would never have dreamt that the one who would die would be God the Son who became man. And there's that beautiful quote from Derek Kidner when he speaks about Eve taking and eating from the tree. How simple the act, how hard the undoing. Take and eat. She took and she ate. How simple the act, how hard the undoing. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat ever again become verbs of salvation. Isn't that beautiful? Derek Hedners is a genius of a writer. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat ever again become verbs of salvation. And God is confronting Adam and Eve here with their sin so that they might have ears to hear and be confronted by their Savior. I'll take the rest of the Bible to tell that story. But that Savior is here this morning. He's walking in the midst of the lampstand, as he always does when the church are gathered. And he's offering himself to you this morning. Those of you who know me, Jesus says, Every day, keep short accounts with me. Don't hide your sin. Don't cover them up. Don't brush them under the carpet. Bring them to me. Confess them to me. That our relationship can be repaired and the sprinkled blood can wash you whiter than snow. But maybe you're here this morning and you recognize, you know, I'm I beginning to feel convicted that I've been hiding from God at First Presbyterian Church. And... I'm, I don't know what to do. And God says, stop hiding. Come to me and I'll bring you home. Confess your sins to my son and he'll wash you clean. Come to one of the pastors of the church. Come to, come to David or Brian or me. My door's always open as well. And let us guide and shepherd you to the good shepherd. You can take your sins away and give you life in place of the spiritual death that is by nature in our souls. Because in reality, when God made Adam, he's a pile of dust, a body. And God bends down and breathes life into his mouth. And the first thing Adam sees is he opened his eyes. Is the face of God giving him the kiss of life? It's a very sober thing. What God's saying is what makes you more than dust is the breath of God. And if you walk away from me, you will begin a process that will make you less like God and more like dust again. From dust you were created and to dust you shall return, which is a lesson to our generation because our generation is full of the idea of of. of preserve the body, protect the body, plump the body up with injections and fillers and surgery and make yourself look young. But our bodies are dust suits. They're returning to the dust. And the answer is to go back to the God who gave us life, not just in our body, but the God who breathed life into our souls. Because without him, all I am and all you are is a pile of dust. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It's just so wonderful to come and have your word be true to us and honest with us, exposing us. We read it, but really it reads us. Forgive us for the way we can hide from God. Forgive me for the way I can hide from God. Behind a pulpit at times, O Lord, busy in ministry and yet drifting away from God. Draw us all close to you that we might seek first your face and your kingdom and your righteousness. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.